0: I saw you weren't at school today. I went to the doctor. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. What's wrong? Rural problems. Bad cramps. Yeah. I get those two pretty much run through a bottle of painkillers like every month. Yeah, same. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? Time. Welcome back, Oscar fans. You're listening to the OCC. This is Jake. The Academy has uploaded its first batch of best picture film submissions to the Oscar screening room. One of the films included in that is Eliza Hitman's Never Rarely. Sometimes, always. It's a film that came out earlier this year that I didn't cover, and I want to take this as an opportunity to cover it. This film played Sundance in Berlin. It was originally released into theaters right before everything closed. It was then re-released on video on demand, and a movie that, for my money, is the best movie of 2020 to date, and it's really not all that close. So I'm really excited to, to cover it today, and joining me to discuss it is filmmaker Adam Lippi Adam, thanks for joining the OCC.
1: Thanks very much, Jay.
0: I'll consider this like a spoiler conversation. We want to be able to talk about the full movie. So if you haven't seen this movie um, before you keep listening, I would advise you to watch it. So we should probably stipulate off the top. Like, I acknowledge that this is going to be a conversation with two guys talking about a movie that's heavily centered around abortion. So there's something that's inherently a little bit fraught about that. And I understand that and acknowledge it and, and, and want to say that off the top. But, you know, despite being... Male, I found this movie to be very, very affecting. Like I said, I, this is the most powerful thing I've seen this year, and and frankly, in, in a little while. What about this movie resonates the most with you, I guess, just from sort of like a, a gut, you know, first impression standpoint?
1: Well, I like movies that are um, about things that I don't know anything about. Now, I know what a crisis center, a pregnancy crisis center, like what she goes to early in the film. I know what that is. They have one in, in my area. I also live in Pennsylvania, not quite nowheresville like Shemoykin, which is coal country where, where she, the beginning of the film takes place. But yeah, because I'm not, you know, a teenager, I'm not, um, you know, I, I've never personally had an abortion, obviously. I, I, I very much appreciated how clinical everything was. I love, um, I, I should mention that I've seen uh, her Uh, first two features as well I love how she does not bother with exposition you just figure it out on your own you just watch and there's no lazy sequence where someone just says hey your name is autumn and you're this and this and this and we know this about you it's just all implication you don't know uh, are we supposed to believe that her father or maybe it's her stepfather is the one who's the father it doesn't it doesn't really matter um, all the the guy that she throws water at in, in one of the early scenes is is that the father or just a jerk? Uh, who knows? I, I very much enjoy where you don't spoon feed the audience, um, especially in a in a kind of uh, drama like this, where you nobody feels the need to constantly um, explain themselves. It's just awkwardness, and you experience it. Um, in the way that they're experiencing it. And you can see how, how much they're struggling. And you can see whenever anybody asks them a direct question, they don't know how to answer it. I, I love stuff like that.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think that's primarily what jumped out to me about this movie as well. I think kind of a worse movie would have, for example, verbalized a lot of the relationship between Skylar and Autumn as they take their trip and and try to convey things that in this movie are conveyed through kind of one gesture or facial expression so eliza hitman is the filmmaker here and um you mentioned that you know i think this is probably the first familiarity that many people will have with her work but it's not her first film and i know that you've seen her collection is this sort of a feature of her filmmaking style this sort of subtlety and and i guess lack of exposition in, in
1: your observation it, it absolutely is the movie she made right before this um Beach Rats, which is about a teenager who hangs out with his buddies on the beach in Brooklyn in Coney Island and is uh, secretly sleeping with older men that he picks up online um, while trying to fake a heterosexual relationship. We don't get the the scene where it's like, Hey, how come you're gay? Hey, how come none of that? It's just, we're on his face. He's, he's doesn't emote much. Um, it's very much like, um, the first two films are very much like watching Larry Clark films, but without any of the purience. Um, so while they're comparatively explicit to versus a major, you know, mainstream film, um, it's not exploitative at all. There's nudity, but it's so matter of fact and, and everything in it is, is matter of fact. It's just, you know, teenagers being confused about their sexuality in different ways, beach rat and then um, it felt like love is from a female perspective. Um, and and you you focus mostly on the main character and then the the side characters don't get nearly as much um they're they're kind of on the periphery you get you get a sense of who they are but because we don't get exposition because she doesn't she's very careful in a strange way about not establishing locations um that you just have an interior and you fill it in yourself you're like oh this is where i am we didn't bother with like huge establishing shots and at least in the first two films and you're just, okay, I'm in a kitchen. Okay. I'm at the beach. Okay. You know, there's, they're just not these grand things that they don't, there's no spoon feeding at all. It's up to you to, to fill in the blanks and, and you do. And that's, you know, one of the difficulties with uh, making a film without any exposition is you limit the audience who, who wants to go with you, especially when you make uh, films uh, that can be easily dismissed as kind of slight because they're, they're about very specific experiences but but sometimes the imagery is so uh, strong. Um, there's a sequence in Beach Rats where the main character's father dies um, but we don't even know we just make the assumption that's what happened He's it's mentioned he's got cancer and then they just cut to the next shot and he's in some sort of fancy car in a suit and they don't say anything and then before he gets out of the car there's a reflection in the window of uh, two children um, playing and it's obviously like a you know, a, a nice image that is counterbalanced with like, he never had this shot. He never, you know, he's depressed, he's disoriented, he's struggling with the sexuality and the fact that his father died and how that's affecting everything else. And he doesn't, um, he's never had this shot of just the um, carefree. And that's, I guess, similar to what, what the uh, other characters in Never Rarely Sometimes Always Also experience. Like there's no, what I found striking is there's no uh, effort at all, and I was amused by this to make any of the men nice at, in any way. the The nicest man in the whole movie, from you know, is is the guy who brushes them off at the port authority, who gives them the uh, directions and then says "Have a nice day" in kind of a dismissive way. That's the only time that anybody is not trying to exploit them at, at all. In the in in never, rarely, sometimes, always.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because you mentioned Larry Clark, and obviously, Kids is probably his most Signature work, and it's a movie that centers around really a predatory, dangerous, I guess, male lead character.
1: But also, also bully. Uh, bully really gets at that a lot more. That really follows around these awful kids. But you never, with Larry Clark films. Sorry to mean to interrupt. But there's one thing about Larry Clark oh. films that that Eliza Hittman does not do. Larry Clark, you, what, what, uh, Bully is my favorite of his films. But and the reason is he walks this line where you cannot tell whether. These characters are so, who are based on real people are so empty that he hasn't that that it's an accurate representation of who they are, or uh, he hasn't bothered to fill in the characters period, and he's just lazy and he's only interested in the Purian part, and it walks that line so finely that you're you're like okay I'll just give it to you, you know these people these people are are sketches because that's who they are as human beings, but go ahead sorry. Yeah no
0: no and that is that's an interesting perspective, uh, but I mean they certainly. I guess in this movie and never really sometimes always you know the world around these girls is relatively indifferent to them but the male characters in these movies kind of feel dangerous throughout or or threatening at least in, in some way even you know the seemingly kind of harmless kid on the bus who's on first glance is just trying to flirt with these two girls they're sort of men in this film are just kind of posed as threatening. I guess, what did, you, what did you make of that? What was your experience kind of as a male watching this movie where it's, it's clearly kind of shining some kind of spotlight on the threat of from sort of the overt to the harmless that seems to be being a woman interacting with all these men?
1: Well, I thought it was, it, it was of a piece with, with the, the fraught nature of the entire experience that like, they just have absolutely nowhere to turn to. I mean, one of the thing, first things I wrote down while watching Never Rarely was, boy, the mom looks young. How old is she supposed to be? You know, because at first they, she was so young, I thought it was like her older sister. And then I realized, no, it's her mom. And the reason she wants, you know, maybe not the primary reason, but one of the reasons she wants to get rid of this child, maybe that's a crude way to put it, but to have an abortion, is that she sees, hey, this is her future. Once the first one happens, then you're just working dead end jobs forever and you know you're you're 29 and you have three kids or maybe four or maybe or maybe you know maybe the mom had her at like 15 or 16 with this one guy and and uh all of a sudden you know she has she has no choice no no nothing and it's just one dead end situation after another and it was the only time in any of the movies of hers that i saw that there was ever a thought of the future there was ever a thought of what happens outside of this one instance was Oh right, she. Th- there, this has to be a calculation that she is worried about um, what life is like after the time that she spends in New York, having to do this.
0: That's an interesting read, and and to your point, kind of about how subtle the screenplay is and the lack of exposition. You know, that's obviously not something that's ever, ever stated in the movie, but it is pretty clear from early on in the plot that sh- she either doesn't feel ready or whatever reason is like keeping the child is not really in her plans at all and yet you know her first experience in pennsylvania in her hometown is is obviously kind of it it becomes very clear early on sort of the the impression there of abortion as an option in this first part of the movie kind of as the premise is being laid out in in a subtle way I, i guess just what did you make in general of sort of the the intro to this movie prior to kind of the start of the road trip
1: Again, it's, it's, it's fraught with all this peril. I thought there was one, one thing that the, 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 payoffs kind of come in reverse, the pregnancy tests, the scene when she's throwing up in the supermarket and, and her, um, cousin slash friend says, Hey, are you uh, okay? And she's like, she's like, no. And she's like, well, didn't you go to the doctor? And she says, she says, I, I did, but they couldn't help me. Um, I took a test and the, the cousin says, what kind of test? and then it, it flashed in my head is how old is this cousin supposed to be who she doesn't know what what she'd be talking about and then later on when the cousin lies to the to the guy just to get the money and tells her oh i'm, I'm 19 or 20 you think yeah uh, i mean obviously that's a lie but how old is she supposed to be and how much how much does the cousin see in what what her her cousin is going through having to get the abortion that how much is she seeing oh this might be my future too and then it, it occurred to me as she's making out and there's that amazing scene at, at port authority uh where they're making out and she 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 goes to find her where autumn goes to find her cousin and i thought well she's clearly like 14 13 or 14 how many guys has she made out with is this like one of the first if not the first that she's just going through the motions and they hold hands for her to get through it as as, as someone might go through like a you know, if someone is about to be in a lot of pain, you hold their hand and help them get through it. Is that what's going on here? Like, is she dulling the emotion, but like, it's still painful because she just doesn't want to be there and she's doing that for her cousin.
0: Yeah. It seems like the kind of lack of explicit dialogue, kind of describing what's happening throughout the movie, you know, it it could be kind of just realism, but it also seems like it's almost how these girls cope with a lot of difficult circumstances is to sort of compartmentalize these painful experiences that they are having. You know, that, that to me, I feel like as you watch this movie and you see kind of everything that this cousin is doing to support the main character, Autumn, and you just like begging her, it's painfully that you want Autumn to have some scene where she's just like, thank you, thank you for doing this. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for, and it just isn't there.
1: Yeah, the only time it happens she curses at her. Yeah, I'm, it's one of the only bits of profanity in the entire film.
0: And probably the closest thing is maybe in the last scene where they're they're sitting and just eating pastries and you know she sort of allows her like a you know she doesn't really want to talk about what she's just been through but she allows her sort of like a, some levity in terms of just talking about you know something kind of non important but like in a in an engaged way. Yeah, I mean, it seems like suppression and sort of kind of hide, you know, having to bury kind of some of these experiences is sort of a theme throughout the movie.
1: Well, to your point earlier about the experience, the the first part of the film before they get on the bus, one of the more striking scenes is obviously the crisis center. I live in suburban Pennsylvania, 35 miles outside of of Philadelphia, and they have one in my area. They're not really medical professionals and they pretend to and they get government funding and it's distressing when you read that it's unclear whether the you know obviously the video that they show her is to discourage her from getting an abortion and it's obviously not an option in their minds like you cannot do this but it's not clear whether and it's not clear within the film whether the mistake they make about how far along she is in the pregnancy is deliberate or because they're bad because they're not they're bad at it because they're not actually doctors
0: in general when I think about what really moves me like when I'm watching films or when I you know when I think about the movies that I think are really truly great movies it's those moments that you don't see coming and I think that that to me was really there's a couple within never really sometimes always and I think that's the first one you know as she shows up you know so obviously we, we haven't really covered what the plot is because we already said this was a spoiler conversation so I assume everybody's seen it but you know as this girl is traveling to New York to get an abortion, when she was in Pennsylvania they told her she was 10 weeks pregnant and and she meets with the abortion clinic in New York and they tell her that she's 18 weeks pregnant and and yeah I mean I my reading of that was definitely intense but to your point it, because so much of this movie is unstated you know there's no scene and I don't know how what this scene would look like but there's no scene of like you know the women back in Pennsylvania cackling at like yeah. their evil deception or anything like that. So you don't know but you're left to i i guess i my assumption was that there is intent in that i I don't know how did you read it
1: um it was probably a combination of their sloppiness and just like uh, you know not that they would have thought that she would then venture off to new york to deal with it herself there is the the crisis center scenes are part of the dead-end narrative of what, what i mentioned earlier with the the mother not being not appearing to be that much older than her daughter then these, these uh, women who work at the crisis center also have the same point of view as you're never going to leave this this zero-horse town anyway. You might as well just keep shooting out children because that's that's what your job is. That's what you're supposed to do is just keep, keep feeding the meter of children, essentially. Um, so it may not have been a cynical choice on their part to misdiagnose or misread the sonogram. Either they do know or they don't. Mm-hmm i don't know if the ant i don't know which one is necessarily worse Um, if they did it cynically that's one thing but that would assume that they were uh, competent enough to even diagnose how long how far along she was anyway Um, it's part of the bureaucratic nightmare that she goes through in new york and you know i'm while watching it i'm more proud of her getting through the bureaucratic process in new york of of going you know okay well we gotta stay here and then i uh... we, we we can go to this one place oh no we can't and the other one's a two-day process and now the strength to bother to try to do it over three days and obviously not worrying about the fact that they got fired from their supermarket job which would have been clear if either the stealing the money would be noticed or the fact that they didn't show up for work for three days would be obviously a factor it is it is one of those things where you're like um i i get we're just so focused on this and it's interesting that she's focused. She's focused on the long term, but not the short term. When um, in in Hitman's other films, it's all short term. It's all what is it that I need to do right now? What is what is my initial emotion? And I how do, how am I reacting to it? Her, the, the whole premise of never rarely sometimes always is that it's long term thinking at the expense of short term solution. You know, no short term solution, no short term answer. Going to screw up your life in the you know in the now to save it for the future when the other films don't even consider that as a possibility.
0: So what is your, I'm interested to hear your perspective on Skylar. So this is Autumn's cousin who accompanies her Her motivations, which read is pretty pure. If this is a movie about the protagonist, all of Skylar's actions seem to just sort of support that protagonist, I guess. How did you read that character, and and what was driving her decisions?
1: Naivete, uh, wanting to be helpful, um, seeing the you know that she has to go through the same creepiness of the supermarket where the guys you know playing with her hand when she hands the guy the money. Maybe a little bit more foresight, but it's naive. I I took it as I want to be supportive, but I don't necessarily know how. That's why I thought that 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 uh, vomiting scene was so important because you just get oh she's really young, she really doesn't know. I was very amused by the scene on the bus where, where the guy starts flirting with her and says, you know, we got close quarters here. And, and she says something to the equivalent of, yeah, there's basically no way to avoid you.
0: <laughs> well, and that's kind of interesting as you talk about naivety because she does seem very seasoned at having to fend off these types of sort of quote unquote harmless just like flirting.
1: Right. Well, she's, she's more she, of the two, she's more the traditionally attractive one. So uh, one assumes, especially in the in Shemoykin and the coal town they're from, that she gets more of the attention. I mean, again, we're just filling in yeah. based on what we understand of life. like Because none of it is stated, but I, in the same way that in Beach Rats, the woman that the main character dates as sort of cover is very uh, traditionally attractive. She's got a, but with a big joker smile. And part of that idea seems to be, if i if i do this then my friends will assume that i'm straight and you know that's who i want to be with because look how attractive she is and that that's always a factor in the calculus these characters are doing i don't know how much of a self awareness that the cousin and never rarely sometimes always has but she must she must be aware oh i'm getting more attention and that you also have to maybe read into is uh, Autumn more sexually experienced because she wasn't getting the positive attention. And so she, maybe the, her version of positive attention was, because, again, because you don't know, was part of her calculus that she's done throughout her whole life. Like, uh, you know, she's been with six guys, as she said, which would seem like a lot by, I guess we're assuming 16 or 17 years old. 17, I think. It, yeah. it, how much of that was, she's not accepted. How much of this was for attention? I mean, when we get to the scene where it's clear that some of these guys did it without her permission how much did she just go along to get along because she thought that's what she was supposed to do if that makes sense
0: right yeah no i understand and and the the scene that you're referring to is i think kind of the second scene for me that was really just a powerful like the type of scene that really elevates a movie and that's where the name of the movie comes from which is where she is uh meeting with the counselor um at kind of when she you know the whole movie is sort of navigating the bureaucracy of of how difficult it is to get an abortion she has to go to multiple places but she ends up at sort of the place where the is the right place that she's supposed to be at and her meeting with a counselor where she has to kind of go through and she gets a series of questions and has to answer them never rarely sometimes or always and it just sort of unveils this very disturbing difficult kind of sexual history and you know ultimately kind of escalates to like a really emotional reaction for her of of kind of letting herself confront a little bit kind of everything that she's had to had to endure what did you make of that scene how how did you feel about it
1: i mean that's that's a great scene but it was also set up by the previous scene which i thought was almost as good of a reveal when she's at the first place and she she pulls up you know she doesn't want to pull up her shirt to show them all the bruising Mm -hmm. um that you kind of know is coming Although I guess I didn't expect or anticipate that it would be so severe, and you wonder, even though it's again never stated that the 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 doctor who's examining her, does she think a she did this to herself or b she's getting beaten at home or c you know what? But but there's no there's no shot of the doctor looking aghast. There's no shot of, oh my God, we need to take you to the you know. It's just yep, that's what happens. And so when we get to the next stage of it, when she's when she's being more officially examined in preparation for the abortion, that scene is obviously utterly brutal and so emotional because she's unable to, just like with other films that that Hitman has made, just answer direct questions without either deflecting or telling really insufficient lies that aren't convincing.
0: Yeah, I I thought it was really an astounding scene. I guess before kind of, I want to zoom out a little bit, um, but like in terms of the just action or the what actually happens within the movie. Was there anything else that really jumped out at you for discussion?
1: If I had a criticism of it, it would be um, she has a problem uh, in all three of the features that she did, in which the third act kind of is aimless until it kind of resnaps into focus. And so there'll be sort of a 10 minute period, maybe about the hour five, hour 10 minute mark, maybe a little earlier, where it'll just start to meander and it'll repeat itself and you wonder I wonder if this is serving any purpose. You know, we're 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 watching essentially the equivalent of a you know American version of Italian neorealism. Could this do with a bit more focus? Could you chop some of this out? Um I, I thought of like some of the flirting near the bowling scene could have either been tightened up. And that happens in our other two films in which they're they're just sections that are a little bit repetitive and aimless and you your your mind begins to wander a little bit because she's because she has been so tightly focused and you you wonder okay it has this has this movie lost its way and then and then it'll all of a sudden be get right on it and just have some very key scene that uh that is emotionally uh very um satisfying well not satisfying perhaps but emotionally very uh daunting and um you know moving in some way or another I thought that never really probably handled it better than the other two. I think she's becoming more of a skilled more confident filmmaker um because the other two films are more uh all over the place, and you don't get as much you're you're having to read so much into the characters that there's there's not much to hang on to if you if you're not one hundred percent in their head all the time
0: yeah that that's interesting and I can definitely see that I think it worked for me because their experience is so aimless like they're Kind of trying to get through the night in a in a train station in new york and and i can uh, so i feel like the the ambience of just sort of like a little bit of loss of orientation like sort of worked for me or it didn't bother me but it definitely it is a change in tone for a little while and then like you said it really does snap back and you sort of understand story-wise the purpose that it's serving or at least that was my experience
1: I totally agree with that um i, I wonder uh, if anybody listening to this would watch some of her other films and how that would how it would play when you watch them uh, as i did sort of backwards which i watched never really first and then watch the other two because it, it isn't necessarily like like the filmmaker that hitman is uh, maturing mm-hmm. she's just I- expanding in a way while still maintaining her her focus and some some of the the details are less um uh they're, they're more subtle and never really like there's a very funny moment which is so kind of absurd if you're paying attention in Beach Rats where they're on a boat uh, the guy and his uh, the main character and his uh, girlfriend and the guy is, is named only in the credits I don't even remember him being named at all in the film and he's making out this his girlfriend on a, on a party boat that's going around New York City and they're, they're in this bathroom and right behind them is a sign uh, that says, um, uh, closet. <laughs> and you're, you're like, okay, I get your point. You know, he's in the closet and here, here's him compensating because he's trying to convince himself to get into the situation. And there's mm-hmm. nothing in Never Rarely that is, as maybe not over the top, but as like on the nose as that, that she avoids the, the obvious signposts to go on the nose, um, is, is, uh, I think a, a, a great reflection of her perhaps maturity about the situation no no attempt to spoon feed as opposed to in that situation which amused me but seemed pretty a pretty easy joke to make
0: yeah heavy-handed yeah so i guess taking a step back from the details of the film now you know this is an oscar podcast and i tend to try to track the horse race throughout the year and to me like this is easily the best movie for me that I've seen this year. I've seen most everything that's that's come out and this is to me my favorite movie by quite a lot but it's a it's a March release it's mm-hmm. um, you know kind of an independent feeling film yeah what is I don't, I don't know how closely you track the kind of or care about the the horse race of it but do you have a, a perspective on kind of how you think this film may, be evaluated, you know,
1: what, seven, eight months from now and when, when this is all getting voted on? Well, because we're in a unique circumstance where everything's going go to go direct-to-home video at this point, direct-to-VOD or whatever variation, or uh, I know I've been talking to people about virtual screenings um, where an independent theater will take a, take a piece of your, you know, link to a Vimeo link somewhere of your film and then take a piece of it for almost essentially advertising on their site. Which, I mean, is a perfectly valid way to keep the independent theaters open, though I, you know, uh, it, it's hard to know whether the independent theaters will be able to sustain because who in their right mind in this situation would want to go uh, to a movie theater um, when you can just wait a couple of months? Why would you risk your life to go see um, an intimate drama or anything, honestly? Um, and I, I can't foresee this changing for the next. Uh, Year or so until we have a vaccine or something in place, because no matter where you are in the political spectrum, this has to be (laughs) terrifying of, Hey, why would I want to risk my life to go see whatever the latest popcorn movie is? Yeah. But maybe, maybe, maybe people don't think that far ahead. I don't know. I mean, I know that um, I wanted to shoot a film in the fall and I know that I uh, cannot do that uh, in any good conscience, probably uh, until, at the minimum late 2021 or something like that, because mm-hmm. who's going to want to get a crew in. So you're going to have this situation where all of these things that would normally not get any attention, get a lot more attention. You know, the, the never really sometimes always was probably not going to do that well theatrically, even though it's a great film because of the subject matter. And then it get more attention because it, you know, opened and then a couple of days later disappeared from theaters and went on demand pretty like right away. So everyone, m- many more people saw it than would ever see it. Because uh, it was one of the first, I'm at home. And before there was the full panic too. Before there was, how long is this going to last? Are we going to be, is this the end of the world? Are we? Do we all have to turn into preppers? Although you do wonder how much of something that seems so small is going to be insignificant in a year. You know, how come it's, not, you know, will something that's about the end of the world get way more attention? And because, and I realize I'm rambling a little bit here, We're in a situation which a lot of the big releases are going to get postponed because they can't make their money back because they can't play in the theater. How many? How little competition is there going to be? It's 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 completely it's it's utterly impossible to gauge any of it. And also, I'm assuming the the Oscar broadcast itself next year, which would be I'm assuming I think they postponed it right by at least a month. Two months. It's in April. It'll it'll seem low energy by default, and like it doesn't matter. I mean, in the scheme of things, does it really matter? But it it will seem like the the bastard stepchild of, of a year in which, hey, it wasn't fair. There weren't a lot of movies that came out. So without, I guess that doesn't quite answer your question, but d- does it have a shot? Yeah, because there's not going to be a lot of competition. Is it better than anything I've seen this year? Sure. But, you know, I don't go to a lot of the mainstream stuff, so I, I don't, you know, I think the only thing I saw was in, uh, The Invisible Man um, that came out this year, unless there may be some other things that are on VOD, but nothing serious at all so yes it it does it does have a shot but only in the it wouldn't normally and not just because it came out in march i just don't think these very uh seemingly slight although i don't think the movie is Mm -hmm. slight but how it seems from the outside serious movies have uh, that with with no famous people and no money behind them really have much of a shot because if you think of the great small movies of the past couple years that did do very well like roma and uh, Moonlight, which Beach Rats is very similar to um, in content, not quite tone, but similar. If those did well, but they had they had money, they had a marketing push behind them. And Roma is made by a a filmmaker that has made a lot of celebrated films that were financially successful before. So in a normal year, no, there would be no shot for this to get any Oscar attention. But in a year where there aren't going to be a lot of anything else. Yeah, I don't see why not.
0: Yeah, that so it's 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 interesting to to hear you kind of talk about that because I think that what you're saying is right to an extent. Like to me this film has caught on critically at least, like with with critics and sort of been elevated to a level that I feel like it could be in the mix come Oscar season. Even, you know, let let's say that everything goes the way that studios think it's going to go right now, which seems You know, very questionable. But, you know, let's say that they do get West Side Story out in December and they do kind of maybe push some things to January and February that that had originally been planned. Some of the big movies um, for Oscar season, like The Last Duel or, you know, Make. And some of the, let's say those movies do all come out. I still think that this movie has sort of broken through enough, feels important enough, and is being appreciated enough that it could sneak in there, I think, and and be a contender. But I do think what you're saying is something that I maybe hadn't thought about enough or acknowledged enough that, like, part of the reason it was able to elevate was because of how it positioned itself on VOD, because of the lack of other movies. Because, like, if I think about a movie last year like Her Smell, you know, that seems like a pretty analogous movie. It was, like, came out about the same time. It was critically appreciated. It was probably about the same you know number of theaters is never rarely sometimes always was initially released into and yet kind of come Oscar season it had been forgotten about and disappeared i don't know i think to me like i, I am going to be st- stunned if there are nine more movies that come out this year that are better than never rarely sometimes always so the question just becomes kind of do enough people remember it especially with the extended window um but i'm rooting for it i'd say i'm definitely rooting for it cuz i thought it was a Really profoundly beautiful movie, near perfect.
1: Um, I, I really thought this was an astounding film. I mean, as you probably know, I don't think better or worse is really uh, a, a thing that matters in terms of what gets nominated for Oscars. No,
0: not always. It's that, That's sadly true. There, there's,
1: there's plenty of things that get nominated that are just utterly mystifying. Uh, as, a, as someone who used to be a film critic, um, I knew what would get nominated when, when the screeners would arrive because I knew what came in first and i could predict okay well this is going to get more attention because this was the this was the stuff that came in in the first week and everyone watched it and then whatever came in last would be at the top of the pile you play the top of the pile bottom of the pile game and it was it was fairly predictable how that would work whenever the screeners would come you know fedex would show up and then these would show up the first week and then then there'd be a then then 20 would show up within 2 days and no one would ever watch any of those because it was just too much and then At the end, like the prestigious ones would come in, five or six of those at the end, and they would come in like every couple of days. And you're like, okay, these are the ones that are going to get nominated. It doesn't matter if they're any good. I mean, I know that sounds like a very cynical way of thinking of it, but it happened to work out every time I would get screeners.
0: Oh, yeah. And so the Academy obviously made some changes this year. They've, for the first time, opened the screening room throughout the year. So there's like four, every quarter, basically, they show nine movies. And never really sometimes always was included in this first quarter so may you know hopefully too, that maybe with everybody at home that kind of elevates it for this for this voting body um but it's very hard to tell and to your point there's not a great history of sort of the quote-unquote critical best films uh being the ones that are celebrated at the oscars so i guess we will have to wait and see you know before we go i know that you are on the verge of releasing a film yourself also with pennsylvania ties do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that
1: Sure. I wrote, produced, and directed a horror comedy about a viral pandemic in inner city Philadelphia. Uh, It was finished uh, a couple months ago and it's called Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. Uh, Going through distribution right now. Uh, Hope to have it out soon. It's um, basically um, there's a virus that's loose in inner city Philadelphia and uh, it causes massive dehydration. But because the film takes place on the hottest day of the year, nobody can tell who's infected and who's just uh, sweaty. And the massive dehydration causes people to attack other people because people are mostly water and one of the attacks is caught on a viral video and uh the military comes into the local hospital to try to stop it and maybe you know tamp it down and they realize they can't so they fence off the inner city to uh let everybody die and it's about the people who are left there to die and it's uh uh, much eerier than it would have been uh, had i made it uh, uh, much much longer ago because uh, the villains openly discuss things like uh, quarantines and uh, how they're gonna hide the high death counts from the public and how they are perfectly comfortable letting the disease run wild because the people of this area are black and hispanic and poor Um, and uh... i I didn't come up with this a couple months ago I came up with it many years ago and uh, because of uh... i lived in the area where most of the film takes place and uh, it was shot specifically in Germantown in Philadelphia, but it, it's, it takes place mostly in Nice Town, which is, which is next to it, which is a real place that is actually called Nice Town and is the uh, least safe place to live in all of Philadelphia. Um, it's unfortunately named. And um, so at the moment, I'm uh, dealing with distributors and hope to have it out uh, pretty soon. Um, and I know that description sounded very grim, but it, it's, uh, it's uh, mostly a comedy uh, with satirical uh, elements, uh, social commentary. Uh, uh, some of it gross, some of it sweet. Um, you can find the trailer on wait, wait, don't kill me.com. Um, which should give you a sense of what the film is like, which is, um, gruesome and goofy and, uh, unnerving all sort of at the same time.
0: It's astoundingly prophetic. And it, it, I guess in, in a kind of hail Mary for hope, do you have any future projects about a world that is in a bit better shape that might portend a a happier 2021?
1: (laughs) Uh, No, I don't. I write dark comedies um, or dark dramas. So, yeah, my my next film that I wanted to shoot um, is uh, much more personal and intimate, smaller, like uh, Wait Wait Don't Kill Me has like, you know, 40 locations, 45 speaking parts, 100 uh, extras, um, and the next film is three people, mostly. Uh, uh, About 85% of it taking place in one location. And... My concern is that because it does, you 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 worry about making a movie in the future, whenever it is that we can do that, that does not acknowledge the coronavirus, because there's the film that I've written doesn't acknowledge it because it was written beforehand, but it wouldn't make sense to acknowledge it. So you're worrying, you worry like, hey, how can how can you not acknowledge blank? Like when The Graduate came out in the sixties, there were a lot of people who said, hey, how come they're not acknowledging Vietnam? How come they're not acknowledging whatever the big thing of the day that changed the entire world is? How come they're not acknowledging whatever you know?
0: Yeah, um, there'll be enough of that. I think I'll be excited to watch movies that are not like found footage Zoom movies um, right. by twenty
1: twenty two. So uh, yeah, I have no intention of doing that. It, the, the film I wrote cannot cannot be done via Zoom. It's a, uh, you know, we we all. Uh, I was uh, I uh, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday, and we were they were asking questions and i i about like personal things and I, personal movies and i said you have to hide your personal things behind genre genre tropes there's no way to do it otherwise it's embarrassing if it's just all personal yeah. so you know my film while it involves some personal elements is is you know within the guise of a kidnapping thriller because if i didn't do that people would be like yeah most personal films are just generally embarrassing and so specific as to be alienating um, which I guess ties it back into Eliza Hitman stuff which is so specific that it could, it's going to be alienating to a lot of people which may answer your question about how much uh, Oscar attention it might get because it's so specific because it is it never backs out and give you any general anything you either relate to it or you reject it either for religious or personal reasons or you're like this is boring this isn't about me which didn't happen to me or you, obviously, but, you know, is always a, uh, a, a, a possible concession. Uh, I know when I recommended people to watch Moonlight and they'd say to me, why would I want to watch Moonlight? Uh, I don't know anything about that. I'm like, well, you know what? I'm not black, I'm not gay and I'm not from Miami, but I loved it. And I re- I was able to relate to it and, and, and empathize. And maybe that's part of it. You know, I, I recommend Roma to people and they say, "But well, why would I want to see that? I don't care about you know, Housekeepers plus it's got subtitles and it's in black and white and I'm like so you, want, you don't want to learn anything about something you don't know anything about and yeah. usually they don't and they just want reassurance and so that may uh, undercut the Oscar narrative at, uh, on the whole because this is such a specific movie about specific incidents that may not be personal to Eliza Hitman but feels real in a way that people who want escapism may not be able to relate to or want to I know that there they're, that uh, I wanted someone to watch this with me and she said that she couldn't handle it right now because because the world is falling apart it would be a bit a bit much and I understood and maybe maybe that's part of it
0: I mean I do you know I, I hope that people will give this movie a chance it is one of the most profoundly sad things that I've watched in a long time um, but to your point I think that you know we were both moved by it without being the exact people and, and for god's sakes women and, and people of color have had to watch mostly just, you know, white male dramas for the last 80, 90 years. So I think that it's, you know, it's, it's due time that there's more,
1: Hey, <laughs> us white males do not get enough attention in, in the media. Our viewpoints are not represented uh, 100% of the time and that's how it should be.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So in any event, um, it's, you know, it's a film that I'm rooting for. I also watched the trailer to wait, wait, don't kill me. And I'm looking forward to that. Thank you again for, uh, for coming on to, to discuss the film. Really appreciate it. Sure, absolutely.